no matter if you're a Chinese company, you're an American company, wherever, there needs to be more robust controls on how all companies are collecting data. There are a number of real problems, but how do we respond to those risks in a way that actually creates more security and safety online? Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Sam Sachs. Sam Sachs is a senior fellow at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center and a cybersecurity fellow at New America. Her research examines information and communication technology policies globally with a focus on China. She has worked on Chinese technology policy issues for over a decade, both with the U.S. government and in the private sector. Previously, Sam launched the industrial cyber business for Siemens in Asia, focusing on energy sector cybersecurity markets in Japan, South Korea, and China. Prior to this, she led the China technology sector analysis at the political risk consultancy Eurasia Group and worked as an analyst and Chinese linguist with the national security community. So Sam, welcome to the podcast. I've been following your work since we met several years ago at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, and I've found you to be among the most clear-eyed thinkers when it comes to tech policy and U.S.-China relations. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. So before diving in, let's start at the beginning. Tell our audience about your upbringing and how it shaped your worldview. Thanks so much, Hank. It's a pleasure to join you for the conversation. I actually began studying Chinese as a student in high school, and I think that this shaped my worldview in two really key ways. One, it meant that all of the work that I've done in China was really rooted from the beginning in a passion for language, and then for eventually going to the region and interacting with people in that language. And I think that's something that's increasingly difficult for young people to do today, given the current dynamics, but also because there's in some ways less of a focus on having China experts who have lived and worked and operated in Chinese. The second is that my school where I began studying Chinese is actually a Quaker school. And my father was a conscientious objector in the Vietnam War. And so it paradoxically, one of my first jobs out of graduate school was working for a defense contractor and later working in the Department of Defense. But I come from a belief in non-conflict and a sort of the Quaker tradition, my father's being a conscientious objector, I think has really shaped where I am today in terms of thinking about how can we avoid catastrophe? How can we coexist with a powerful China and create a more stable, peaceful world in that way? So how and when did you develop your expertise in tech policy? I majored in comparative literature in China, focused on Chinese literature. And so it was only later that I began layering on top of that linguistic interest and interest in geopolitics and international relations. Tech policy was something I learned on the fly. After graduate school, I cut my teeth as a linguist analyst, and I was in the weeds looking at Chinese companies involved with civil military integration, which now we hear a lot about military civil fusion. But I think before tech policy was a thing, I was learning about 
how China's defense industry worked and the development of technology. And that's just been the root of everything that I've been doing since then. That was almost a decade ago. It's a really an interesting way because every now and then you get a career engineer who's got it all planned out. But I think more often than not, people take it step by step, do things, do it well, learn and take it from there. So now let's talk about US-China. So Sam, set the stage for our listeners. When people in Washington talk about the growing U.S.-China technology competition, what are the core issues on the table here? What are the key technologies the U.S. is focused on with respect to China, and why are they causing so much friction? You know, I think there's actually a lot of confusion among U.S. policymakers about what are the core issues on the table. And when I ask people what is the goal? What is the objective? You get a mix of answers. So I think that's part of the problem, right? Is So let's just lay out, what are we trying to achieve? One of the goals may be let's restrict the flow of technology and expertise that could advance China's capabilities in technologies with military use or military end users. Um, so think things like nuclear security, quantum or biotech. That's pretty straightforward. But then when you get into areas like artificial intelligence, AI, how do you even define that? So what would it mean to restrict technology or expertise to something like AI, where it's very hard to prevent code from crossing borders? I remember a few years ago, I was talking with one of the top Chinese investment firms in China. And I said, what is your leading AI company right now that you're focused on? And she said, actually, there's a company that uses AI, computer vision and robotics to sort out mushrooms on an assembly line. It turns out there's lots of different types of mushrooms. And this is a very labor intensive, but sort of high value business, and we don't have the workers to do it. So we're using computer vision and robotics to sort mushrooms. So that's AI, right? Another objective that I hear is we need to kneecap Chinese companies in the tech sector before they become dominant enough to compete outside of China. You hear other policymakers who will say, you know, it's really just about decoupling. We want to sever capital flows. We don't want any investment going in that could be used for economic strategic advantage. There's also a goal related to human rights and the use of technology that would enable human rights abuses or the Chinese government to get political control over minority populations in China. So this is a whole spate of issues. And I think the task for policymakers is to clearly identify what is the specific objective and what are those tools? And you asked about what are the specific technologies? I think there are two areas that there's been a lot of attention on recently. And in the last few years, one is semiconductors. And here, the goal, as I've heard it articulated from U.S. policymakers, is to ensure U.S. or Western dominance in the manufacturing of semiconductors and essentially to freeze China at a certain level. So the one that is most often articulated is to freeze China at the 14 nanometer level or to keep them several generations behind by controlling certain choke points in that semiconductor supply chain. And then separate but related, there's a whole conversation right now happening around data flows. And we can talk about that more later in the podcast. But I testified at a Senate Judiciary hearing last week, actually, on this very question of what is the national security risk around allowing Americans' personal data from transiting to China? So that's kind of the broad contours that I'm looking at of the tech conversation. 
Yeah, one of the things that I've heard you say that you mentioned at the beginning, it's very difficult to determine what our technology policy is going to be vis-a-vis China unless we figure out what it's going to be for the U.S. or, you know, with Europe or whatever. And technology is moving so quickly. This makes it very challenging, right? Right. I mean, and and I think that's where the conversation gets hard, because when you talk about export controls, for example, in the Trump administration, a process began to identify lists of what were called emerging and foundational technologies. And the idea is that technologies that fell under these lists would be subject to more rigorous forms of export controls. The challenge is, how do you develop lists of technologies and evaluate their impact on national security if those technologies are still emerging or foundational? We don't even know what they're going to be yet. And so in some ways, I think there may need to be a shift away from saying, what kind of technology are we talking about, to looking at the processes in place to making those determinations. Yeah, I think that's critically important. And you know, you've got it this, but there's been this steady push in Washington to decouple with China in the tech sphere space through a use of tools, you know, export controls. We've seen it with tariffs, entity lists. So the trade-offs involved in implementing these restrictions, what are they and how will the decisions here impact our national security? And our economic security. There certainly are trade-offs. I think so far the conversation around the trade-offs has been too simplistic. It's been limited to, well, it just means that American companies aren't going to make money anymore in China. And it's actually much more complicated than that. So there's actually both economic as well as national security strategic trade-offs depending on how some of these, these decoupling tools are implemented. So from an economic perspective, If certain semiconductor companies, chip manufacturers are not allowed to sell in China, that is revenue that then is not able to be plowed back into the R&D needed to maintain levels of innovation and technological leadership. There's also national security implications. I think that if the business community and our top engineers and technologists lose visibility into what kind of cutting edge tech development is happening in China, We don't know where they are. We don't know where their capabilities are. We also don't know what the motivations are. And so this will impact the ability to sort of understand the so-called adversary that we're preparing to either outcompete or go have a conflict with, which could be dangerous. Jim, I want to go back. That all makes sense. I want to go back to your question, to the point you made on processes, right? Because You know, it's very easy to have this conversation at 100,000 feet and to say what we really need is, you know, a small yard and high fences. So let's protect, everybody agrees, the technologies that are vitally important to our national security need to be protected. And I think many people agree that if we go too far, like you suggested, we make ourselves look too much like China in trying to defeat China or deprive our companies and our workers of participating not just in selling products to China, but into value chains, you know, globally, right? Because a a lot of this battle is going to be fought and won commercially in terms of rolling out technologies and setting commercial standards and all those kinds of things. So looking at the process, he's talking about the process, because do you agree that although you can't obviously let U.S. business set the policy, they can't do that, but that there's got to be some process where 
business is involved when in talking with government and working with them when they figure out how to make these controls work. Because at least in my experience, uh, business often understands more about the technologies than some of the regulators. Right. I agree with you. And I think that there's, you know, we talk a lot about public-private partnerships. It's kind of a buzzword, but what does that really mean? I think that this administration and probably the one before it in some ways also has a view that talking to business and being lobbied is sort of at odds with achieving certain national security objectives. And I see that as a false dichotomy, right? I think that there's a lot of the real technological expertise resides in the private sector on these issues. So we need to come up with a process to bring the true experts to the table to figure out. So for example, on this question of choke points, if we now view global and technological interconnection as something that has vulnerabilities that can be weaponized, then it's about how do you put those controls in the right places? And I think that's something where you need to really bring in true experts who are on the ground and understand the technology you know, to do it. Otherwise, it's not going to make the United States any more secure or prosperous, particularly to your point as the competition between the U.S. and China in the tech space is increasingly going to play out in third country markets around the world. And so how do the policy tools we put in place impact the ability of American firms to maintain competitiveness in these third country markets? It's a key question. So, Sam, let's turn it around the other way. To what extent should Washington be concerned about Chinese retaliation to American technology restrictions? If I look at the last couple of years, the Chinese government had incredible opportunity to retaliate in response to U.S. actions, and they didn't do it. So even when we floated the idea of cutting off Huawei's key suppliers outside of America using the FDPR, which would essentially say, if you're not an American supplier to Huawei, but you use a certain threshold of US-originated software or equipment, you also can't sell, sell to Huawei. And there was a question of, would TSMC in Taiwan be impacted? Even then, the Chinese government did not retaliate. Our listeners that don't know what Huawei is, they're a, a Chinese technology company that was leading the way, rolling out 5G technologies around the world. They lined up a number of tools, the unreliable entities list, the MOFCOM blocking rule, the anti-sanctions law, but none of these have actually been used in a way that would exact a significant cost on American businesses in China. Why not? As much as it's very difficult for American companies to operate in China, the reality is that I don't think Beijing wants to fully alienate the business community. There's significant economic pressure. They still need the foreign investment, the know-how, at least for now. And so they haven't used these tools. The other tool, which would be very significant if used, is under China's privacy law, which took effect last fall. There's a provision in there that would blacklist American companies from handling Chinese personal data. If, for whatever reason, the Chinese government found that the U.S. had discriminated against China when it came to data, they could in turn blacklist a company from handling Chinese personal information. Again, we have not seen it. And I think the question is, will this change? And what would be the signpost to watch if it would? And the signposts I'm watching that could trigger that retaliation. So 
Do we see foreign executives being detained or physically intimidated? Is the U.S. government going to use the Treasury Department special designated national sanction? I think th there's no doubt that at some time China could retaliate. Now, to get area that's got a lot of attention in the U.S. is data security and privacy right. Huge issue. You know, when you just look at that, there's different views toward this in Europe than there is in the U.S. We'd have a hard enough time just dealing with the Europeans on this. And obviously in China, very big differences. So you've recently given congressional testimony, as you mentioned, on data security. I thought you did an excellent job there. But what are the specific risks posed by China when it comes to data security and privacy? And what should the U.S. government do to discuss these risks? And again, this is on China, but I just make the point overall, we've got big debates in the U.S. about this, right? Yeah. Very big debates. It's an economic issue, it's a technology issue, and it's a political issue, right? And there are differences around the world. But U.S., China, data security and privacy, go through that for us. This is a moment where the U.S. does not have its own affirmative vision for governing the internet or for governing data. And I fear what's happening is rather than grapple with this issue in a broad way, we're dealing with data through the China threat lens only. So what do I mean by that? We don't have a federal privacy law. If you are a tech platform operating in the US, it is a free for all. But we have a number of proposals underway that would block Americans' data from being handled by Chinese companies or from flowing to China. So what that what does that mean in concrete terms? Let's say that TikTok were completely banned in the United States. Well, Facebook, for example, could still openly mine, exploit and sell your data on the open commercial market to criminal actors or to foreign adversary governments around the world. So what I tried to do in my testimony is I tried to say, let's step back and think about this from a more comprehensive way, right? Some of these issues are about China, but so much of them are so much bigger than China. It's about how do we govern the digital economy? And Hank, I remember you said something recently, which I thought was so helpful in this regard. You said, look, there are real problems in looking at the Xi Jinping government, but the question is, how do you address those issues? And I think that that approach is really useful for how we think through this issue of data security. So what are the problems with data security with China? The history of cyber espionage is well documented, but I think that right now what U.S. policymakers are worried about is what they perceive to be this new risk frontier. So if you know that the Chinese government has acquired sensitive personal information from the hack of the Office of Personnel Management, for example, which was about 21 million records for personnel applying for national security clearances. What if, for example, that data were to be combined and aggregated with data that they got openly through scraping social media um, information or location data or health data. The way that U.S. policymakers view it is that the Chinese government is creating these aggregated profiles of people that could be used for blackmail, for coercion. Now, I think that is a threat, but it's actually only probably impacts a pretty narrow slice of the population. So if you have a national security clearance or you have access to critical infrastructure or military information, do you want to have all your data out there available 
to be used to blackmail or coerce you. No, and you should probably be subject to a lot more rigorous controls around that, but that's not new. The other threat they're worried about would be bulk electronic surveillance. So using data transmissions globally for intelligence gathering, for example. This is something that we understand well from the Snowden revelations. And I think in some ways, the US government is just as worried about China and gaining control over global network infrastructure because they know what we've been doing with that dominance and network infrastructure for decades. And now for the first time, we have a pure competitor in China that could do that. Anyway, there are a number of real problems that I spent time with the senators outlining what are the risks, but how do we respond to those risks in a way that actually creates more security and safety online? And I think the way to respond to those risks actually requires doing something which doesn't really have a lot to do with China. It takes China out of the equation and says, let's put in place, first of all, we need a federal privacy law. No matter if you're a Chinese company, you're an American company, wherever, there needs to be more robust controls on how all companies are collecting data. If it's sensitive data, they shouldn't be retaining it. And what third parties are they sharing that with? And it was interesting at the hearing, this was welcomed both by the Republicans and the Democrats. So Marsha Blackburn was all about federal privacy law, right? And then the Democrats, uh, Senator Coons and uh, Senator Whitehouse were very much interested in proposals around privacy law, around controlling data brokers. So there seems to be momentum around let's take geopolitics out and actually control the data itself, focus on better protecting the data rather than the country that the data is flowing to. So there are a number of different ways to address this issue that I think really get at the root of the problem. My point that you referred to early on is that, you know, when China does things that are adverse to the U.S. and unattractive, and there's plenty of those. And so often the conversation I'll have with someone is they'll say, China's doing these things which we don't like, and I'll agree, and I'll say, what do you want to do? And then often their response is something that would hurt us more than would hurt China, or doesn't really address the problem. And of course, this becomes more acute in the technology area because technology is moving quickly. And if you want to be dark about this, you'd say technology is moving faster than our ability to figure out how to control it. And uh, I, I don't take that view because I think we can come up with the right policies. You know, I, I want to do things to make sure we protect ourselves and protect our data from China, protect our national security, of course. But we don't want to just use China and all the political issues and the real issues around to jump in and make ill-thought-through technology policy issues. Because as we said, it's hard to figure out what to do, even in the U.S. They have big differences with Europe. Now, Sam, let's move to China and what we see them doing. I think their economy is still feeling some of the impacts from their tech crackdown. So in recent years, China, as you know, has exerted more political and regulatory control over big tech platforms, Tencent, Alibaba, you know, platforms like that. What has been the effects of these crackdowns on the Chinese tech ecosystem? And how do you see this playing out over time? At the very moment when U.S. policymakers have been concerned about concentration of power in a handful of big tech platforms in the U.S., 
The Chinese government has had similar concerns and has taken very significant steps to ramp up its own antitrust enforcement. But it's not just antitrust, to your question. There's been what I've heard referred to as an, a broader enforcement surge focused on big tech platforms in China. Some of it is using antitrust tools. They're also using data security, going after the online education industry. I think these have been distinct stories with different objectives. And the effect overall is that it's had a very chilling effect on the private sector in China. And the uh, what I have heard in conversations recently with contacts in Beijing is that the message has been received and that I think going forward and particularly on the other side of the party Congress, we will probably not see the same volatility in terms of having such a massive company like Didi, which is the Chinese equivalent of Uber, a ride-sharing platform, um, essentially brought to its knees. So I don't think we're going to have that same volatility, but that chilling effect on the private sector, and particularly on the so-called soft technology of social media platforms, I think does remain. I think that what's going to happen is it never was about breaking up big tech, right? It was about sending a message that the private sector should carry out party objectives and add real value to the economy. And if they are seen as not doing that, then there's going to be significant ramifications. And uh, Sam, this goes far beyond the tech sector. So I think one of the reasons why the Chinese economy has headwinds, and there are a good number of reasons, but that Xi Jinping putting the party into the private sector to a greater extent is is making a big difference. And there's no doubt that it's, it's made companies more conservative. It's been a real headwind. Sam, now let's talk about economic decoupling. Many companies are examining their China business and looking at the extent to which they should and uh, can decouple. And of course, technology is an issue which is getting intense focus. So tell me, how, as you look at tech decoupling and look at the supply chains, how do you see this playing out? Well, I think that the supply chain is not a single thing and that there are many different elements of it in the same way that there are different Different sectors I'm seeing respond to these dynamics in different ways. So if we were talking about a high value add, high skilled manufacturing kind of area, that's one where it's really difficult to diversify from China. And I don't see that happening. I mean, think about, for example, the very precise high volume components that go into, you know, an iPhone, for example. That's something that is very difficult to diversify away from China. If you think about companies that are on this sort of lower value add side, lower wage workers, I think for actually many years, there has been a, a shift to look at other parts of Asia, primarily for cost reasons, maybe less for geopolitics, although that certainly plays into it. And then there's just the question of how are companies walking this high wire act? And, you know, we heard reports last year, like LinkedIn is leaving China, companies are shuttering in China. And it's not exactly right in the sense that LinkedIn, I think, is a telling example, because it shows if you're going to stay in China, how do you hyper-localize and minimize your regulatory exposure. So what LinkedIn did is, I mean, first of all, Microsoft is very much in China. LinkedIn remains in China, but they have a local version of the website that essentially doesn't allow 
news posts and chats in the same way. And so it makes it so that the company can be there without having to be as responsive to the demands around censorship and online content. And that's just one example of how do you kind of navigate to exist in both worlds. So, Sam, this has been very good. And let's let's close with your advice to our younger listeners. What advice do you give students who are navigating their lives and careers in today's rapidly changing world? When I talk with recent graduates or college students who are looking to begin their careers, I always say, go and live and work in a foreign culture. Now, I used to say, go and live and work in China. Get a job in a Chinese company. And then if you want to come back and go into the private sector, you know, work on Wall Street or the national security world or an NGO, then you can. But get that on the ground experience interacting with real people. Now, that's gotten really difficult to do with China now because of COVID, because of the tensions with the U.S. and China. But I'm hoping that in the next year or so, some of those travel restrictions can lift. Because to me, when we step back and look at the decoupling policies, one of the biggest problems I see is a dehumanization of the people on both sides. And when you have an opportunity to really understand a foreign culture, there's really nothing that compares in terms of your skill set and your analysis that you can apply to anything that you go on and do. Absolutely. And it's hard for anyone in the U.S. to set U.S.-China policy if you don't know what's going on in China, right? You really have to understand what's going on domestically to have an effective policy. And you could say that all around the world. I mean, one of the biggest eye-openers for me was my experiences at Goldman Sachs, a global company, as I worked my way up in the Goldman Sachs and traveled around the world. And, you know, at the end, I was spending more time outside of the U.S. than in the U.S. But that's the world we live in. It makes a big difference. So, Sam... Thank you. You've shown a bright light on the U.S.-China technology competition and the complex and important policy issues it raises. And that's not an easy thing to do. So thanks. Thank you. It's been always great to talk with you on this. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.